Hello and welcome to the Bit of a Tangent podcast, where we bring you mind-bending ideas from science, philosophy, artificial intelligence, and medicine. This episode in particular manages to combine all of those fields under a single topic. I'm Jin Lucker, a data scientist and quantified self-enthusiast, and as always, I'll be joined by my co-host Jared, a brilliant contradiction of a human who somehow manages to devote as much energy to solving differential equations as he does to being a full-time medical student. Now, in this episode, we explore game theory, incentive structures, microeconomics, civilizational inadequacy, and the AI alignment problem. We approach this conversation from first principles, so even if you have no background in the aforementioned topics, the next 45 minutes should be sufficient to get you from zero to the top few percentiles. That said, this episode does make heavy reference to an article from Scott Alexander's blog called Meditations on Moloch. Whilst we try to explain all the relevant aspects of this throughout the episode, reading the article will certainly add a lot to your understanding. It's really lengthy, but we both think it's worth it. The link to that article and everything else we mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes, so please do check it all out. And as always, we really appreciate your feedback, so write to us at podtangent at gmail.com or get in touch via our Twitter handle at podtangent. Let us know how you enjoyed these topics and what level of technical detail you'd like in future episodes. We always appreciate hearing from listeners. And so, without further ado, here's the episode of Bit of a Tangent. it's worth just setting the scene here we are referring to a fairly well-known blog post by scott alexander on his blog slate star codex and have you read it before before this or was this the first time i hadn't this was one of those ones that you had recommended to me but i had sort of ditched into my uh, to read list and not yet got around to and I came across it again, but it's quite lengthy. And there is also a podcast version of the Slate Star Codex. So I ended up listening to that on my commute and at the gym. And so, yeah, I was very impressed with the article. It is, I think, one of the sort of seminal works in that sub like that sub community of rationalists, because I think it captures a lot of themes which are tangential to the interests of a lot of people there's transhumanism there's existential risk there's uh, coordination problems which i think is going to be the central focus of this episode so that's why i like it and maybe what we can do is why don't we try and read what i think is the punchline of the article and we can try and work backwards from there and explain uh, let's let's see if that works so i've got it open in front of me here So this is a a quote from the essay. It says, the implicit question is, if everyone hates the current system, who perpetuates it? And Ginsburg answers, Moloch. It's powerful, not because it's correct. Nobody literally thinks an ancient Carthaginian demon causes everything, but because thinking of the system as an agent throws into relief the degree to which the system isn't an agent. Bostrom, this is Nick Bostrom, 
makes an offhanded reference to the possibility of a dictatorless dystopia, one that every single citizen, including the leadership, hates, but which nevertheless endures unconquered. And that's the end of that quote. So I think without a lot of explanation, and maybe without even context, that doesn't make too much sense. But I do think it's worth having that punchline right at the beginning here, because now we know almost where we're aiming. Yeah, so it's this idea of a, I mean, it's a Canaanite god, Moloch, M-O-L-O-C-H, for anyone who wants to look that up. Uh, and yeah, it's the, the mythology of Moloch is, as far as I'm aware, that you would make these grotesque sacrifices, uh, such as sacrificing your own children to Moloch in order to gain personal treasures or favors or things like that. Um, and so it's, it's quite a fitting mythological creature to attach onto this idea of people have to sacrifice common interests in order to pursue their own. And so the, the characterization of, of Moloch as, as linking to this idea comes from uh, Allen Ginsberg's poem, um, so who's the American poet um, from the last century. And Scott Alexander, in his essay, uses this poem as, as a reference point and uses this idea of, okay, we are calling this thing, this tragedy of the commons-like situation, Moloch, right? We're anthropomorphizing this idea of, Everyone is just doing the most reasonable thing that gets them to the next best position. And as a result, everyone is suffering. So there isn't some figure there who is imposing their will upon everyone. It is just the, na the, the natural state of affairs, given the, the current system and how it plays out. So maybe uh, you could try and give an example there in terms of sacrificing a value in an evolutionary or other sort of competitive game. And I think game is a specific word I'm using there because a lot of what we're going to speak about tonight is grounded in game theory. So let's just right off the bat use that terminology. Yeah, so something that comes up quite a lot in our discussions is using this mathematical or logical framework of game theory to discuss a lot of the kinds of situations that occur in science, rationality, everyday life. Um, so this sort of classic example in game theory is your prisoner's dilemma, right? So you've got two, two agents, two parties will be in a situation where if each acts in their own interest, uh, the overall outcome is not ideal for both of them. Um, so, you know, there's a very formal breakdown of this and a situation behind it. I think a lot of people are familiar with the prisoner's dilemma, but essentially the, the idea behind it and behind, uh, other game theory examples is that if the prisoner or the agent acts in their own interest, they will be sacrificing some value, uh, that both of them might have. So for example, if the prisoners choose to def defect against each other, um, which would mean they could lower their own sentence in the classic framing of the problem. Uh, as a result, if they both defect, then they both uh, testify against each other or provide evidence against each other. And as a result, they both get them a, a very severe punishment. Uh, if neither of them defects, then there's not enough evidence to prosecute them successfully. And so they both get a very minimal sentence. And so because both want to be, uh, want to gain sort of the uh, clemency uh, of defecting against the other and then getting all free, 
they it's in their own personal interest to defect. Um, and in the terminology of game theory, we say that the Nash equilibrium, which is sort of the uh, state of affairs when everyone does the most reasonable thing from their position in the current game, um, the Nash equilibrium there is kind of inadequate, right? We All right. It, it's it's not the best outcome. Okay. And I think maybe the problem is, is I think a lot of people have heard of the prisoner's dilemma. But I think what's so interesting about the Moloch example that Scott gives in this essay is this obviously applies to not just uh, made up hypothetical prisoners, but it has to really apply to the society we live in, right? So the other example that I think helps to think about here is that of evolutionary competition, right? Where, you know, initially uh, a species moving into an environment, uh, there's excess resources. And so there's not much struggle to survive, right? Uh, so this species will breed and breed and breed, but they're not struggling. So we can say that the suffering level is fairly low, whatever species you want to imagine, right? But as that species starts to butt up against the limiting capacity of this environment to sustain a number of individuals, then that slack, right, that that excess um, resources that previously led to good quality of life, right, maybe it led to only having to forage for four hours a day, right, and now, and because of that, there was lots of time for leisure, once the species butts up against the carrying capacity for that environment, organisms who sacrifice an extra hour of leisure to uh, forage for five hours a day outcompete organisms that forage for four hours a day, right? And then you can see that that becomes this race to the bottom where you had at the start a bunch of different organisms or a bunch of organisms who got away with 20 hours in a day free and only scavenging and foraging for four. But you can see that the sort of stable state where you can always sacrifice an extra hour means that everyone has to sacrifice that leisure time and not doing so means you are outcompeted. But the problem with this, and this gets, this is how this is analogous to the prisoner's dilemma is once everyone, once some people choose to sacrifice leisure time for extra resources, right? Extra time to forage, then you either don't do that, in which case you die, or you do do it, in which case everyone now, let's say, forages for five hours a day. But because everyone's doing it, you get the same amounts of resources. So everyone was better off originally foraging for four hours and getting X amounts of resources. But now you are all worse off and you get the same amounts of resources. And that's, I think, a more physical grounding of the prisoner's dilemma, which you could view as this like high level abstraction of the key principle at work there. And I just wanted to point that out because I think otherwise everyone nods along when they say, well, I've heard of the prisoner's dilemma, but it's actually so applicable to ideas and realms uh, because now I'm saying organisms, but you could read into that people choosing to either work a second job or spend time with their kids, right? This suddenly becomes much more applicable. You can read this into companies choosing to um, support the environment or maximize for profits, 
So that's what I wanted to add in there. Absolutely. And I think that 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 scenario that you described is much more like the tragedy of the commons scenario that's presented from the sort of economics background. I think the prisoner's dilemma is a very rationalist uh, example to use because it talks more about agents and it is sort of the base case of game theory. Um, and it ties in very close to the mathematics. It's very quick to reduce it to a mathematical formulation. Um, so yes, while that is the standard case, I think the tragedy of the commons example is a, a much more tangible way of showing how this can be relevant in daily life. What I also liked is he brought up the example of cancer cells. And I really like this because it's an example of how the agent doesn't have to be a conscious, highly rational being. It just has to obey some set of desires or rules. It has to, uh, you know, favor something over another. So it could be a cell. It could even be a a molecule. Uh, it could be anything. Um, and so the example of cancer is quite great because a, a cancerous cell is growing out of control. It's taking more resources than all the other cells in order to sustain its growth um, and to carry on multiplying. Uh, but as a result, the, the cancer ends up overwhelming the body and ultimately dying too, right? And so you're, you're in the same scenario as the tragedy of the commons, but instead of a guy who's deciding not to filter the water so that he can get a competitive edge, you've got a tumor that is using up all the body's resources and ultimately killing all the neighboring cells that are essential to sustaining life. And I think this is a really great formulation as well because it shows how this is all the same problem and it can be represented with mathematical formulations, but yet it manifests itself at every level of hierarchy in our lives. Um, And so we have spent quite a bit of time going into the game theory background, but I think that's really essential because it, it really is the foundation of all the arguments that follow. And so we get into this idea of, of Moloch being an extension of that, being this idea of there is no one who's going and saying the water should be polluted. There is no, you know, capitalist, big brother, lizard people, Illuminati organization who is mandating that their henchmen put chemicals into the water that are going to pollute it but yet the water ends up polluted. And this very idea of the mechanisms of the system can cause outcomes that are unfavorable for all the people, or all the agents, or all the entities involved in the system. This is this idea of Moloch. Okay, so I guess the natural question that arises then, right, is if, if we're saying that without anyone intending to do so, these disembodied processes, which we are, uh, for the sake of embodying it, calling Moloch, right? We're saying that Moloch can ruin everything, right? Moloch can take these creatures with all the free time and resources in the world and get them competing in such a way that they destroy all their free time whilst getting no extra advantage. So then the natural question that comes up is, well... Yes, it's true, sometimes on Earth we see terrible things happening, right? But for some reason, you know, we are not all in an all-out war for, like, out-competing each other. You know, we we still have time for music and art and leisure and holidays, at least some people, right? I mean, now 
this medley. Let's let's leave those questions aside, I think, for now, because the fact that anyone has the what I can what I would loosely call slack to do those things, right? To create things which have no survival or fitness value. Some people might say, oh, well, clearly this hypothesis that all systems tend towards that state in the end can't be true. Exactly, right? So it's this idea of, you know, if, as you say, it's just this mechanism of the system um, and it's much like cancer and it just spreads without a check until it kills everything. If that's the case, then why haven't we seen that in our world? Exactly. Now, Scott Alexander provides three slash four answers for that. So to run through them quickly, because I think they all play a part, right? The first he posits is you might just find yourself in a society of excess resources. So that first example that we gave of the organism entering a new niche where there's very few organisms and relatively high amounts of resources for at least a while, right? However long it takes them to breed until they reach the limits of that place, they get slack. So you might say that in the early 21st century, where we find ourselves now, we are kind of like organisms that have not just yet butted up against the limits of what the earth can carry. And I think that's actually a really important part of this. I think that we've exploited hydrocarbons and nuclear and other low-hanging fruit, um, as Tyler Cowen would call it, but we haven't quite reached where we need to optimize just for survival, right? Um, the other reason he gives is physical limitations. So um, in the context of, let's, uh, Scott Alexander uses the context of slavery, right? Where there's a physical limit to how hard the system can get uh, slaves to work, right? At some point. Yeah, right. The, the, the idea being that if you are the slave owner, you get a competitive advantage by pushing your slaves harder. And this is what incentivizes things like cruelty. Right. So like in the American South, uh, all these sort of alternative ideas about giving slaves salaries and allowing them to work and send back tithes or whatever like that were squashed by the the sort of the ruling parties. And so as a result, it was just about how cruel you could be to, you know, it was the it was the stick over the carrot, as Alexander put it in that case. Yeah. And I guess also the, the sort of physical limitation to why it didn't ge- degenerate into maximum cruel, though, is because. If you deprive people of sleep all the time, well, they die and you get no more work, right? So it's like there's a physical limit on just how cruel the system can become, right? As horrible as it is to consider, there is a a limit to how much whipping a person will actually get them to output more. Exactly. Yeah, as you say, it's a horrible thought, and it, but it is possibly a reason why we don't see those circumstances arising. Right. The next one is he gives as he calls it utility maximization, but maybe another word would be preference satisfaction. So uh, where there's like another set of constraints and people are free to choose. Right. So this is like um, if you are uh, the example he gives is if you are a farmer trying to sell coffee to some other rich nation while well, they have a set of preferences. And so you know, if you make your wages really low and people can easily move to another farmer, then you don't outcompete them on that axis. So where there's a bit of slack in the system, you still um, 
don't reach maximum badness, right? And then the last one, and this maybe finally gets us into the main topic of this podcast, is coordination or the God's eye view. And basically this, again, comes into where from inside the system, everyone acting perfectly rationally ends up in this terrible situation, right? They're competing for nothing uh, or defecting in the prisoner's dilemma, right? But from outside, it's actually really easy to solve a lot of these problems, you know? If there were some sort of deity who could just come down and align everyone and say to everyone, today, everyone, stop, and we're going to restart with everyone doing this thing, you'd suddenly find a lot of problems went away. So that, I think, should act as our segue for talking about coordination problems in general, and we can either give some examples or why solutions to the coordination problem, as it's known in economics and game theory are some of the biggest technological opportunities and risks that our society might face. So you can sort of think of the natural state of things as being like like a wild jungle, totally unkept, right? If you think of like a rainforest, you think of trees have to grow really, really tall because you have a competition for sunlight. Uh, and so if you don't grow tall, other trees are taller than you and they block your sunlight. And so you are unable to photosynthesize effectively. So then you have to grow taller. Um, and so what you have is just trees expending ridiculous quantities of energy to grow incredibly tall. Um, whereas if they all just stayed well spaced out and the same height, it would be fine for all of them, right? So that's that's another example of a sort of tragedy of the commons. And And an example like that illustrates how, you know, it's all in the mechanics of it. There's, there's, there's no malicious actor. Um, Moloch is in the mechanics of the situation. Um, but as this metaphor goes, you can also have a different scenario, which is much more like a garden. So instead of this wild, overgrown jungle that's totally chaotic and results in all this wasted energy and chaos, if you have a gardener come and plan exactly where to plant things and how to lay things out to trim weeds and remove... Uh, species that they don't want in the garden, you end up with this beautiful orderly environment where things like flowers can grow, which you know would otherwise be totally smothered out by taller vegetation. Um, and so I think this this idea of a garden and a gardener as a way of having a a third party, a sort of almost a deity or an overlord uh, to to help mm. coordinate is is a really good example, right? Um, and this was something that existed very clearly when you had monarchies. Um, you know, the, the, the king essentially has no interests other than the state's interest because the king has no one to compete against. Uh, they've won the competition, so to speak. And so their only job is to ensure that the competition they've won remains a healthy competition. The problem is people have varying degrees of skill in that and one person is only so effective at something. Um, whereas in democracy, you have much more like the jungle, uh, which is interesting because it protects you from some of the worst aspects of an overlord or a gardener, let's call him, um, but it also prevents you from having the best aspects of a gardener. And so the coordination problem is really about, well, is it possible without having a gardener um, to all simultaneously switch from being a jungle to a garden, for all the plants to agree to just become a garden um, and because they're all doing it at once, uh, no one loses out. Or do you have to have a gardener? And if so, how do you make a good gardener? 
so for me that's that's the coordination problem sort of summarized uh in a in a metaphor let me add on to that um one of the reasons i think one of the more compelling ones that i think I mean, there's many reasons that as a society, I think we want to think about the coordination problem. But the one that struck me most recently, and it was a, a powerful idea, was Nick Bostrom's paper about the idea of, as a society, we've been sort of selecting technologies out of this, this in this blind process, and we don't know when we're going to pull a technology that's deadly out, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's this idea of no one is deciding what technologies we're going to invent next. It's just this mad rush to invent the next technology. All the incentives of the system favor people discovering things and spreading them into the world for financial or personal gain, right? So everyone who is trying to discover things is just trying to discover the next thing that they can then bring into the world. Um, and so I, I, Bostrom has a really elegant uh, metaphor for this which is an urn so i don't know if you want to give some yeah so the actual paper was called the vulnerable world hypothesis and what bostrom basically posits is we are acting as a society as if there's no such thing as something that we invent that could be universally and uniformly fatal but says bostrom when we invent new technologies, it is as if we reach our hand blindly into an urn, right? And so far, when we've pulled out our hand, we've found mostly white balls, right? Balls that have just improved society. And sometimes, as a society, we have reached in and pulled out a gray ball, which is a, a technology that has the possibility for good and bad. So this is like nuclear, right? We make nuclear power stations, we make nuclear weapons, which could destroy everything. But Bostrom's point, and this is the powerful one, right, is because we are putting our hand in blindly and we don't know the contents of the urn, it could be that one day we reach in and there is a black ball. And he frames the idea of this black ball as a technology which every civilization that encounters this or discovers this or invents it is rapidly and irrevocably destroyed like there is no way to not destroy yourself with this technology and i think for example you know someone might say that's that's just not possible but you know for example if if fissioning um if if making refined uranium did not require the resources of a small nation state, right? If you could do it in your backyard, well, then anyone maybe could make nuclear weapons. And it might be true that like complex societies cannot exist in um, worlds or universes where the laws of physics are such that it is that easy to make nuclear weapons, right? Like anyone with just a pet peeve or a... Um, religious reason or joins a cult or has a um, a delusion could end big parts of society, right? Yeah, yeah if, if it was as easy to, to detonate a nuclear bomb in a city center as it is to, you know, smash a piece of cutlery or crockery, um, 
well for starters greece would have would have taken out many many countries by now um but in addition to that i mean you can see how easy uh you know if if, if a fit of rage is sufficient to start a nuclear war well then what hope would the world have right i mean even even as it stands now we've we've dodged total annihilation a number of times there was uh and, and unfortunately his name's going to escape me the uh russian uh, sort of intelligence officer who saw five incoming nuclear missiles from the the US and instead of during the cold war and instead of um you know signaling this to his commanding officers to start the retaliation effort decided that it must be a, a false reading and to actually not tell tell them that it happened and it turned out obviously to be a false reading and as a result there was no nuclear war yeah so the reason that I think bringing up this example of the urn is because it throws into relief coordination problems and in, in two interesting ways, right? The first is in the technologies we create, right? Because every individual researcher is in some sense incentivized just to do research that gets publication, there is the problem of, you know, we, we can't, we almost can't help putting our hand back in the urn, regardless of what's in there, right? But now there's the second coordination problem, and this is where things get dystopian. And that is, if one day we pull out a technology that makes it trivially easy for people to print the smallpox virus or to weaponize nuclear, the only way, in some sense, that a stable society could survive would be if we solve the coordination problem in such a way that it became impossible for anyone to do that. So this is maybe a different kind of coordination problem. This is more like mass surveillance and... Yeah, which would be you know, a gardener, right? A mass surveillance system would be like having a, a very strict gardener who meticulously, um, you know, prunes away all weeds um, and lays down pesticide. And, you know, it's the guy who's yeah. checking his garden every single day um, because, you know, the alternative is that the plants themselves would be managing that. And then the other obvious link to this podcast and our own interests is one of the likely tie-ins is that this gardener is probably some form of artificial intelligence, right? I mean, we're talking about mass surveillance, interpretation of data, um, understanding of motives and reasoning, and then action based on that in order to mitigate and prevent some dire consequence. I think this has taken us full circle from viewing Moloch and explaining it and the game theory behind it. But now we sort of reach a more scary conclusion, I find, than Scott Alexander's one, where we not only have Moloch, the terrible driver of us polluting things and all of that, but we end up almost wanting a, a tyrant, a wanting a monarchy, because some versions of the coordination problem, without solving them, literally end up with complete existential annihilation. Exactly. I mean, so so just to to reiterate here, the reason why there's a coordination problem is because there is some state of affairs that are bad for everyone, or could be better for everyone, or all parties involved. But it's in everyone's direct interest not to work towards those state of affairs because they would then personally suffer. 
And so everyone's in this deadlock of being unable to work towards the thing that would benefit everyone uh, because it would so drastically harm them. And even if they just wanted to do it out of the goodness of their heart, uh, they would become like eliminated from the equation very, very quickly. And so would actually end up not having any effect because they would be so disadvantaged. Right now, this is a problem in and of itself. But now you go, okay, well, there's this existential threat atop this, right? To 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 coordinate is means to survive, right? And without coordinating, we all die. But no one's going to coordinate because if you individually make the first step, you you lose out and you die anyway, right? So it's, it's like damned if you do, damned if you don't type of situation. And this is something we we very much need to solve, right? It's like imagine in the garden if if um, or in the garden uh, metaphor, imagine you're, you're in the, the wilderness, right? So it's, it's uncoordinated. There's no gardener. You're in the jungle, densely populated, lots of vegetation. And now one of the plants invents spontaneous combustion, right? Like a plant is, is able to suddenly just spit out fire, <laughs> right? This is like pulling out the black ball, mm. right? Like this, there, there seems to be no sort of upshot of a plant that can just spit out fire everywhere, um, but but it, it's it's almost certain that it will spread and end up burning down the whole jungle, right? So your your coordination is then okay. Well, can we just get all these plants that now learn how to spontaneously combust and learn from others how to do it, not to do it, or do we need a gardener to come in and put sort of fire breaks in and to spread the plants out more and put pathways between so that the fire can't possibly spread out to to other plants. Right, and when you map this back to reality, what form can that gardener take? Like, who are we willing to give total control to, in a way that we can't take it back? Because if we could take it back, the 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 Moloch the Moloch scenario would mean that it's it would instantly control. be taken back, right? Because it would be in everyone everyone's individual favor to be the one who takes back that power, right? If you're the one plant who can spit fire, you have all the power. Yes. Right, you can command all the sunlight, and so if it ever was reversible, it would instantly be reversed. So to give over total control, who do you give that to, uh, or, or what do you give that to? Right, this idea of having an AI who can watch over us and be sort of like this benevolent deity um, who who looks over everything and 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 regulates it and keeps it in control and tends the garden. But how would you go about creating that? What would that look like? And is the garden really in the interest of the plants? Is is that a pleasurable state for the plants to be in? Like it's maybe better than the wild jungle, but maybe not, right? Because it, it means that things that the plants might find abhorrent are happening all the time because the garden is just doing what keeps the garden in the best condition, right? Mapping that back onto society, does that mean you put an AI overlord in control and it goes, um, so every third child that you have must just be like, turned into a farm animal or some other like totally absurd <laughs> thing that no human would possibly conceive of within their moral scope but yet somehow balances the equations um in this advanced deep learning neural network of an ai overlord <laughs> so that's it right is you know people hearing this might say you know are we saying we want this but in some sense, we're saying, you know, you, you're at some point choosing to either succumb to this black ball, right? This this existential risk that, you know, we we cannot get past, right? Without 
the gardener, the AI. So then you say, well, then we have to unleash the AI. And then it becomes a question of this like seemingly terrible moral trade-off between every value we sacrifice to this AI versus just continued existence. And I think the most disabling thing about that is that, as you said, the handover to the AI by definition has to be irreversible. Like if we can ever reverse it, then it no longer works. We're going to be choosing something for potentially all eternity. And so, I mean, if nothing else, this example should be a good reason as to why, you know, people in the rationality community care so much about the AI alignment problem. Um, you know, this, I think, is, maybe throws it into relief quite well. Yeah, if we, if we aren't able to coordinate um, with, uh, amongst ourselves, we might, you know, assign someone else to coordinate for us, the gardener, but then their values must be aligned with ours. Otherwise, we end up with a situation where we have someone controlling everything, but they're doing horrible, abhorrent things, right? The best way to manage humanity might be to render humans totally incapacitated. Um, and this this goes into perverse instantiation and a whole bunch of other ideas uh, of Bostrom's. I mean, and the scariest part about this is that developing AI is not the only way we might do this. It's not the only black ball we could conceivably pull out. There may be no black balls. They might all be white or gray, but there may be more than one black ball too, right? And so there are probably more ways that we that we could destroy ourselves. AI just seems to be one of the most likely and one of the most prescient to imagine, but there are other ways as well. So, I mean, like AI just is one that, you know, we happen to have a background in, but there could potentially be so many other ways. Like maybe like cold fusion, right? Which just could instantly just cause, you know, runaway reactions that unleash quantities of energy that we can't possibly contain, right? Um, various other things like this. Um, and, and obviously the one you actually did mention earlier was, you know, being able to just print the smallpox virus on your 3D printer at home. And, and all of these are, are quite terrifying. However, the AI one might not be a black ball. In fact, there are a lot that might seem to be black balls or might or, or could be or could be looked at as more of a gray ball, right? And so this comes into okay. having this idea of maybe there is some hope of these technological aspects remove the limitations that Scott Alexander identifies, like those physical limitations like we talked about with the slavery example, like you can only push a slave so far. But if that slave's a robot, you can maybe push them, you know, indefinitely. Technology is able to remove all these physical limitations and and various other things that were stopping the runaway effect before. But at the same time, technology might be the very thing that helps us coordinate. So one of the examples that many people bring up is like something like blockchain technology. Yeah. You could use that as a way of coordinating without everyone having to simultaneously opt in. It, it's almost like a the incentive of what serves you best and what serves the common good best uh, are, are aligned, right? Um, and so it's this idea of, of designing systems in advance and doing the hard work against maybe your own interests to create a system that then can be rolled out where everyone's individual interests and the group interests are more closely aligned. Yeah, I think positive solutions to this somewhat, you know, it seems far off, and I hope we've done a reasonable job of maybe showing why, if not being far off, 
some of these ideas are at least plausible, right? We don't know when we reach into the bag the next time and pull out, you know, the slightly darker gray ball or... And I guess, you know, like some of the smartest people in the world are doing research on solving these coordination problems, on figuring out better ways to get large groups of humans to align their incentives and have some sort of governance mechanism. And this is something that we speak about and think about a lot. And it's almost humbling the extent to which few good solutions present themselves. And yet this is an area in which good solutions are worth more than whatever you can measure value in. This is where we need solutions as a society. So I think a lot of this can seem like a, a, you know, an intractable problem. And there are so many ways that humanity can possibly be destroyed. And there's all these concerns of gray balls and black balls. And is there any possible way we can solve this coordination problem? And those are all still open questions, right? We don't have the answers yet. There are people working towards. And I think in the meantime, what is a good takeaway for people is understanding what this idea of of Moloch is, this idea of there doesn't have to be someone malicious for things to be bad. There doesn't have to be someone actively suppressing things for them to be suboptimal, right? The actual mechanics of a system and everyone acting in their own best interests can result in these less than optimum outcomes. And this is this idea that we've got the name Moloch for, right? That comes from this Ginsburg poem. I think that's a really useful thing. And I think the first step for anyone who's coming across these ideas for the first time is to start looking in everyday life. And at places where one would have previously gone, oh, can't they see? It's so obvious that they should do X and Y instead. The politicians can't see that they need to focus more on education and reform the system. Why are they so dumb that they can't see that the policies they're they're passing are not having the desired outcome? And instead of having that condescending almost opinion and, and just looking down at it and, oh, they must be stupid, and instead look at things and go, can I see a way in which the mechanics of the system as it stands could make otherwise intelligent and ethical people act in ways that create an overall result that is suboptimal. For example, in, in politics, you've, you can look at it and go, well, actually, the politicians, to be able to have any impact, they need to get re-elected. And to get re-elected, they have to be showing everyone that they're doing something and achieving something. So it's in their interest to focus on small, immediate issues and not massive long-term ones like reforming education. And so if they want to have any impact at being able to fix healthcare, let's say, they have to be able to show that they can create some jobs and fix one or two things here and there um, and win re-election and buy themselves the time to operate, right? And, and, and when you start looking at things from this framework, it gives you hope that most people out there aren't bad. And in fact, most people out there aren't stupid. And in fact, most things out there don't have to be malicious or grotesque in some way for bad systems to take hold. Now, the challenge there is to think, how can we A, fix systems and B, replace them with better systems? And through designing incentives and through changing things, and it's difficult because you have to, you have to work against the incentives of the current system, how can we create systems that better align individual goals with the group goals? There should be very few systems where you voluntarily sacrifice something that is of benefit to the group 
for some personal advantage. And the more people can recognize situations where that occurs in daily life and work towards thinking of ways that that might be circumvented, I think that we, that actually gives us a shot of moving forward. And this is the sort of ideal of if, if we can save ourselves from this, it will be by applying our skills to using the gray walls in the kinds of ways that allow us to coordinate, to design better systems, and ultimately go, you know what, stuff you, Malak. We are not going to just sit back and let the general mechanics of the system lead us to something that no one wants. We're going to coordinate, we're going to design better things, and however we end up doing it, find a way that we can actually keep moving forward and actually persist our species somewhat into the future. Well, there we have it. I think that's as good pl- as good a place as any to leave it. Yeah, my brain's going to be spinning about this for the next few weeks. It is a lot to think about. Uh, there's, there's so much going on here, but I think it's, it's a really nice one to, to dive into. Uh, hopefully we did it justice. I hope um, so. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for your input and for sending me the, the article and reminding me to, to bump it up my priority list. Otherwise, this conversation would never have happened. No problem. I really hope um, that actually more people will go and read it if they at all find this interesting. It does a really great treatment of a lot of what we, well, everything we spoke about today and more. So, yeah. yeah. And if they can't read it, there's, a, there's an audio version on the Slate Star Codex podcast as well. Uh, it's pretty good if you're on a long commute. Yeah. Very digestible. Great. Thank you, sir. Thanks. That's been a it's been a good chat. Until next time. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Bit of a Tangent podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please get in touch with us and share your thoughts. You can email us at podtangent at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter through the handle at podtangent. For more information about us, our backgrounds, and other projects we're involved in, visit our website at podtangent.com. That's podtangent.com. The best ways to support us are to share one of our episodes with someone who may enjoy them and to give us a rating or review on iTunes. That way, Apple knows that we're actually worth listening to and all the platforms that pull content from them will too. We both love having these discussions and relish the opportunity to share ideas with like-minded people around the world. So your support and listenership are sincerely appreciated. Until next time.